Hello, and welcome to Discourse Season 7, a series of vignettes written by Mamaronic students about everyday objects and experiences as a looking glass into their lives and humanity. Today, we're going to be talking about love. We all experience love in our lives, but sometimes it comes out not quite in the way that we'd expect. These four monologues explore different people's experiences with that. First, an argument takes place in Homewood Suites by Hilton between Andrew Galinsky and his father. He discusses how love is defined by our actions even when it's not necessarily recognizable. That was Stevie George Akakis. This is COVID Odward, and this is Discourse. Homewood Suites by Hilton, with over 512 locations worldwide, is a popular destination for cheesy weddings, large business conferences, quick stays, and in my case, sports tournaments. With free hot breakfast, brutally tucked in bed sheets, extravagant design, a pool that is made for toddlers, and most importantly, the best waffles in the world, this place is worth every $200 to $300 per night. Upon opening the oddly heavy door, you are met with the bathroom on your right. You could look down and see the carpeting, which is undoubtedly dirty and usually dark in color, probably to hide the stains. As you walk in, there's a TV on the left that says, Welcome, Glinsky, my last name, and a bed with about 10 pillows stacked up on the right. A chair rests in the corner, usually untouched during your stay, and that is it. When you live in these things for half your summers, you get pretty used to the layout. In my case, my familiarity with these hotel rooms came from the Summer Lacrosse Gauntlet. For those who are unfamiliar, Summer Lacrosse is a beast unlike any other. I played games across the country in Delaware, Connecticut, California, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Michigan, and more. I had games in a 110 degree real feel and I spent four weeks of summer away from home, away from friends and family. And who was my chaperone, my partner in crime? Well, it was my dad. Consistency has always been key for both my dad and I, which is why we are always so persistent on getting home with sweets. We always knew what we were getting upon opening that oddly heavy door, just like we always knew what our exact routine would be in the day or two that followed. We are similar in that way, routine, routine, routine. And if that routine is broken, things can very quickly fall apart. Homewood Suites is a top-tier hotel in its price range. On TripAdvisor, it has an average rating of 4.5 stars, which puts itself in the excellent category. My dad has never settled for anything less. From the moment he looks for our hotels a ridiculous six months in advance, he always hunts down a Homewood Suite, even if it is a longer drive to the field. He wants to make sure that we are getting the pristine quality because he somehow believes that comfort can lead to better performance, which in many ways can be true. During one tournament, I just played a game in torrential downpour. My jersey felt like a weighted vest and my shorts stuck to my legs due to all the water. 
Don't worry, my dad took immediate action. He handed me a change of clothes that he always insisted on bringing. He turned the car heat up to full blast so it was ready for me when I got there, and he gave me a towel to dry off. These small actions made me comfortable and warm, helping me readjust and prepare for the next game. When I was about 12, we were getting into the swing of summer lacrosse tournaments. During our four-hour drive to Maryland on this particular trip, I jokingly mentioned something about my dad snoring and how it's always disrupting my sleep in these hotels. Sorry to throw you under the bus, Pops, but it's pretty bad. One time, I even put on earplugs and they still didn't block out the noise. Anyway, after expressing my complaint in the car ride on the way to the tournament, my dad didn't hesitate. I kid you not, he called up the hotel room instantly and asked for another room. With no second thought, he got the room for an extra $200, and we've been doing it ever since. I feel as though I'm giving Homewood Suites too much credit. There are definitely many negatives to this place. Some personal experiences include no towels in my bathroom, no soap in the shower, stains on the sheets, TV not working, AC not working, rug stains, hotel keys breaking. Do I really need to go on? With all the amazing qualities that this place has to offer, it has some evident flaws. Life in these hotels was also nowhere near perfect, and sometimes our routine was broken. Almost a year ago, I was at one of my last summer lacrosse tournaments ever. More specifically, it was a showcase invitational that had many implications for building a stronger personal reputation and proving that I can handle such a high level of playing. To put it simply, this thing was important. So it wasn't ideal that I was very sick. Failing to tell this to my dad with fears that he would take me home, I toughed it out in 95 degree heat. I was out of my routine. After the first day, I played mediocre. Shots weren't falling. I was slow. My mind felt blurry. I was clearly off. My dad asked, do you need to go home, son? You aren't playing well. He could sense that I was not right, but I took it as a threat and lost it. Without getting into too many personal details, that question turned into a 20-minute screaming match. Not the first one we have had in one of these rooms. I told him my classic line, I didn't want you at my events anymore, and he told me his. Do you really think you could handle the next level? Both of these statements almost always occurred in our times of crisis. I eventually slammed the door to our connecting rooms, emotionally damaged and upset about what had just ensued. I conceded to my destructive thoughts, which almost always come when this type of thing happens. I called my mom to hear a friendly voice, a voice that always knew how to calm me down. But this time, I could not be calmed. I hung up and buried myself in my pillow. I knew what I needed in that moment. My dad. Soon later, he came in, asking to talk in an attempt to break the barrier that had been forged between us. Yet, as much as I wanted to fix things, I ignored him and refused. Thinking back on it, I don't know why I did this. I told myself I wanted to be alone, when in reality, that couldn't have been further from the truth. I went along with the lie I made up in my head, and he eventually left after multiple attempts of trying to resolve the situation. Our routine was destroyed. 
The bland room that had once felt so personal to my dad and I, all of a sudden felt unknown. The stained carpet, the heavy door, the chair silently observing from the corner, everything just felt off. The crappy hotel that once felt so special to me suddenly just became another crappy hotel. The room of the unknown engulfed me. Arguments like this usually happened one to two times a summer, but we almost always got over them within minutes or hours. Yet this one felt different. I was pushing my dad away more than I ever had, and I felt like he was letting me do it. I realized that the reason I felt so disconnected from my dad that day was not because of the conflict, however. I felt so disconnected because I knew that soon, this whole summer lacrosse gauntlet thing would all be over. All of the time and money sacrifice will be in the past, and all of our experiences will be memories that I'll reminisce about forever. The argument was not what hurt me the most. It was the sheer fact that our time together at Homewood Suites was coming to an end. The next day went like any other. I woke up at 7 a.m. to a breakfast sandwich that my dad had gotten from a place 20 minutes away. He'd fill in my cooler with more Gatorade and water than I could ever need. He had laid out all my stuff the night before to make sure it was dry. Again, it was routine. It was what he always did for me, and I was happy that this was not lost, even after the conflict. Funny enough, I had an amazing second day of playing. And even though I told my dad I didn't want to see him at the field during our argument the day before, I saw him standing behind a pole, catching glimpses of what he could, without going against my wishes. And the truth was, I wasn't mad or confused about why he was there. I knew he would be, and I'm glad he was. Ended up making the all-star game at this event, playing through the sickness and emotion from the day before. We didn't say much, but after my last game, my dad took a photo of me with my all-star hat on, with a huge smile on his face. He gave me a big hug and told me he loved me so much. Life went on. As a college-bound student, some nine months later, reflecting on my past experiences at lacrosse tournaments, I realize now that Homewood Suites didn't just mean suffocating bedsheets, lacrosse games, and small hotel rooms. For one, I realized that it meant more time away from home. I did the calculations, and I was away for about 25 days a summer. Across six summers, that is 150 days. I miss birthdays, work, trips, and memories with my friends. Another car ride to Maryland or Delaware meant more sacrifice and more distance. And this was always hard to accept, but I knew that I couldn't achieve my college lacrosse aspirations without it. And looking back on it, I would not change a second. To me, sacrifice is key to success. And not only did I have to sacrifice, but my dad did as well. I'll forever be in debt for everything he's done for me. And even though I missed all that time at home, being able to spend time with my dad at the Homewood Suites created and built an everlasting bond that I wouldn't trade for the world. I like to believe that lacrosse, these tournaments, or even the Homewood Suites are some of the main reasons that my dad and I are so close. However, I've come to realize that it's not just those things, but everything that comes within them that makes our relationship so special. My dad showed how much he cared with the little gestures getting those two rooms, having my breakfast ready when I woke up, laying my gear out, and always making sure I have enough water 
are a few of the many actions my dad took to make sure I was happy. He never thought twice because it was his routine, and it was a way for him to show me how much he cared. At these Homewood Suites, sometimes we had conflicts, sometimes there was silence, and sometimes we didn't want to see each other. Yet, that didn't matter because we were always together, father and son. If you are listening, understand that small acts of kindness lay a foundation in a relationship, and that we should be especially grateful for those who take time and effort to show and express them. Sometimes, the greatest form of love comes from the smallest actions. Sometimes, the greatest form of love creates conflict and disagreement. And sometimes, the greatest form of love comes from something so small and unknown that it might not feel like love at all. But I promise you it is. I give Homewood Suites Hotel Rooms 4.5 stars. Andrew Glinsky, 2023 graduating senior. Since this piece was produced, Andrew was recruited to play lacrosse at Harvard. And yes, his father has set out Homewood Hotels in Cambridge. Next, we hear about Natalie Miles, finding companionship in Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here when she was feeling lonely over the absence of a familiar love. This song found me. I feel like songs find you when you need them to. This song came to me because I was dealing with a person in my life who had become disconnected from me. So I'm thankful this song found me when it did. The album's title song, Wish You Were Here, is acclaimed to say the least. Maybe it's thought of so highly because Wish You Were Here isn't a shallow song. It's about a person who wished for someone in their life to be not just physically present, but also mentally. This person that is sung about was disconnected just like mine. This was written about Sid Barrett, a member of Pink Floyd who had to leave because of his own personal struggles with mental health, becoming almost a shadow of their former self. Gilmore, a member of Pink Floyd, said it himself. Wish You Were Here is a song that can't be sung without thinking of Sid Barrett. Let me paint the scene of where Pink Floyd was created in. It's 1963 and the Beatles have reached number one for the first time in the UK singles chart, and labor unions and companies are continuously fighting each other. At the same time, Nick Mason and Roger Waters met each other because both were studying architecture at the University of Westminster. Together, Mason and Waters formed the band originally called the Tisa with their fellow architecture students. Sid Barrett, a childhood friend of Waters, soon joined once a member of the band had to leave. Barrett then became not only guitarist, but also the lead singer once the original lead singer left for the Royal Air Force. The band then went through a major shift with their name being changed from the tea set to the Countdown Club. Again, another member left, this time the lead guitarist, and as a result, Barrett claimed the title of lead singer and lead guitarist before Pink Floyd was even created. The band finally settled on the name Pink Floyd a combination of Pink Anderson and Floyd Council, two artists the band collectively loved. In 1965, Pink Floyd began their road to success.
When Wish You Were Here found me. I had known nothing about rock music. I always felt awkward when I would watch adults gush over an old song, and I just couldn't get excited over a song like they did. Growing up, my dad listened to more alternative music. I have memories of listening to bands like Gorillaz in the Car or just straight-up pop music like TikTok by Kesha. I liked the music my dad played, don't get me wrong. I just think I felt a little bit left out because my peers were able to relate on this topic together. In 1967, the band's next album, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, came out, becoming another wide success. They were going to tour not just in Europe, but also the United States, and the band was excited to go. Plans to go to America came to a screeching halt when Barrett had a mental breakdown. Pink Floyd had tried to get Barrett help, but it didn't work. In many performances, Barrett was withdrawn. One example being when he was on national TV and played with his back to the crowd the entire time. It was a frustrating sight for the band, you know? The band was making it big and they just didn't know what to do, so they added David Gilmore to the band, a friend of Barrett who could take on the guitar when Barrett was unable to. Eventually, Barrett left the band due to his worsening depression and schizophrenia. Towards his later days in the band, he wandered around aimlessly and wouldn't talk to people. After leaving the band, he lived a life hidden from the public. The band had continued success going on tour with The Who and by 1971 actually made money. The Dark Side of the Moon, the band's masterpiece of an album, stayed on the top 200 albums for 736 weeks, which is 13, almost 14 years if you round it. That was the third most commercially successful album to ever be created. After not seeing or talking to Barrett for years, Barrett randomly showed up to the studio in 1975. He had a shaved head and shaved eyebrows, so initially he wasn't recognized. Once he was, though, he brought the band to tears. He snuck out to only be seen alive one more time by the band. After the encounter with Barrett in the studio, Pink Floyd released Wish You Were Here. The song didn't meet much acclaim when it first came out. Now, it's considered one of the best Pink Floyd songs of all time. Listen to the lyrics with me. So here I am in seventh grade. I had just come home from school and started my daily binge of YouTube, which is not very healthy, I know. For some reason on YouTube, I was recommended Wish You Were Here. And knowing me at the time, I probably clicked it because I thought the guy on fire on the cover was cool and edgy. I listened to it and to be honest, initially I didn't like it that much. Because I like to see things through to the end, I mindlessly scrolled through the comments of the song, waiting for it to finally end, and my entire perspective was changed once I understood the meaning behind it. It made me realize I had my own Sid Barrett. 
someone who I wished was mentally here with me. That person was my mom. When I was little, I thought of my mom as a powerhouse. How could I not? Every day, her hair was perfectly curled with a bright red lip, a bright dress with a matching cardigan and heels. She would stay her ground and show people who was boss when the time was right. I have no memories of her ever being walked over at that time. She was able to socialize with everyone, and I mean everyone. On the avenue, we would stop every 10 seconds for what felt like 10 minutes because she was talking with someone. There was also something about her aura. I saw her lead people continuously throughout my life, almost wherever she went. Home, work, PTA events, you name it. But one day I learned she has a tumor in her. Back then, I hadn't known what a tumor was. Morbid enough, I learned what it was through reading The Fault in Our Stars by John Green. I now knew what it was, but I didn't know that it would eat her alive. My mom changed. A lot. She was frail and hollow, something I could never imagine my mom looking like, even when she was old. She lost her spark. It's understandable, though. She was battling freaking cancer. But I missed her. I missed her so much, even though she was right next to me. My exact feelings were translated in Wish You Were Here. A bunch of men from the 70s got my pain. Wish You Were Here is so melancholy, but it feels like a blood-curdling scream when you relate to it. This is a song I would curl up into a ball and listen to. It made me realize I'm not alone in my pain. Neither are you. There will always be someone out there, dead or alive, that feels the pain you do. So thank God Wish You Were Here let me realize that. Sid Barrett died on July 7, 2006, just a few weeks before I was born. It was pancreatic cancer. He left behind $1.7 million for his siblings and was memorialized in a bench in the Botanic Garden of Cambridge. It reads, It's awfully considerate of you to think of me here. A sad message when you know its story. None of Pink Floyd showed up to Barrett's funeral. I understand the band and Barrett had a rocky relationship, but Barrett was now physically not there anymore. An entirely different type of pain. My mom went on to live. Over time, she got better going from using a walker to a cane to being able to stand on her feet without help. She got happier as well. She returned to herself. Now, my mom spends her time gushing over whether to buy Shakespeare in the park tickets because her favorite play, Hamlet, is being done this year. She still limps a little, and she still gets tired, but she's here. I'm so happy to say that I don't need this song anymore. Natalie Miles, rising senior. After obsessing about Wish You Were Here, Natalie is proud to admit she now listens solely to Taylor Swift. Sid Barrett, the member of Pink Floyd she mentions in her monologue, 
is rolling in his grave. Speaking of music, let's talk about Jane Kiernan's episode about the iconic Brooklyn Steel concerts and Hat Music's role in her developing relationship with her father. The Brooklyn Steel, a concert venue in Brooklyn, New York, was built in 2016 but opened in 2017. This was right around when I was finally old enough to start going to concerts. At the time, it wasn't very well known because, well, it was new. And the best venue in Brooklyn during this time was called the Music Hall of Williamsburg due to its incredible performers. But the Brooklyn Steel being as popular as it is now, which has been proven by the Rolling Stones' top 10 music venues list, still is an incredible place for an amazing time and live music. The reason why this place is so incredible is because the owners really took into consideration the experience, not just the music. They made the place spacious with a balcony, allowing you to choose where to be throughout the show, and also took into consideration the sound of the place. They did this by creating a high-tech green roof, which keeps in the sound and makes the acoustics incredible inside. The name of the building was created because it was originally a steel manufacturing plant. The venue is owned by Bowery Presents, who also owns the Stone Pony in Asbury Park, New Jersey, which, by the way, is where people like Bruce Springsteen, John Bon Jovi, and many others started out. But the Brooklyn Steel is different, as it is the largest general admission concert hall in Brooklyn, according to the New York Times. For most of my life, attending concerts was quite normal in my family. I'm not saying concert a month, but more like three to five times a week. This passion for concerts in my family was one that my dad started due to his skills in concert photography, a hobby he picked up but accidentally gained popularity from doing. Honestly, the late nights that often kept him into the night left me to ponder and dream about what he was doing while I was getting ready for bed as a little girl. So I knew, ever since I was younger, that frequent concert attendance needed to be a part of my life. I needed to fulfill the dreams that I had made up in my head as a kid imagining what I was missing out on at his times at these shows. As soon as I was old enough, I quickly started attending as many shows with him as possible. The time spent with my dad at these concerts has made our relationship better than it ever has been. No matter what the show is, there's always a story attached. I've always kept a running list in my notes app of the concerts I've attended, just like my dad has. Although, his seems to go on for forever, and mine, mm, not so much. But you get the point. This list has always been the best way for me to reminisce on these past memories at the Brooklyn Steel. Although these concerts were more memorable than others, you all have a story attached of how they fulfilled my dreams that I once had as a little girl. The band Hippocampus from Minnesota, with their top song having almost 110 million listens, was a band that I had listened to for years. It simply grew up with me. So when I got the chance to see them, I knew I couldn't pass it up. The lead singer, Jake Lupin, sang the words, When I'm in doubt, from their top hit, Buttercup, which took me right back to summertime, automatically putting me in a good mood. The most substantial memory attached to this song, or this band in general for me, I would say, is them being the first band I ever saw at the Brooklyn Steel. The line rounding the corner to enter into the venue before the show was lengthy, but moved quickly, and the excitement that I felt while moving through this line was abundant. Everyone was so excited to go and see the show. But it's at the top of my list because I was able to discover how incredible the Brooklyn Steel itself was. I was able to get a feel for the space and how well it carried the acoustics, which to some isn't that important, but when you're going to multiple shows a week, it ends up being something you think about. 
and I was able to just have a good time with my dad. My father and I's love for reggae has taken us all over the country just for a show, and for him, it even brought him to Jamaica. But the first reggae concert we attended together was Ayaterra, a band we started listening to in the pandemic after finding them by accident. Their hopeful and joyous lyrics were constantly playing in the background of my life, especially during the pandemic, in order to keep some sort of positivity present. Nonetheless, we attended this concert with low expectations due to the band only recently gaining fame at the time. It ended up being an incredible concert that I'll forever remember. The atmosphere was full of positivity and fun lights. The vibe during the show was super fun and upbeat, and the band even had a dog named Coco chilling on stage, what happened to be incredibly in cute. The widely popular band Stick Figure, with their top song having over 60 million listens, was one of the many reggae concerts my dad and I has always wanted to see but hadn't yet gotten the chance to until the summer of 2022. One Life I've Been Living In, Come On Let's Go, were not only the lyrics to Stick Figure's song, Smoke and Love, but were also the exact thoughts my dad and I had when deciding whether or not it was a show we wanted to attend. Not because we didn't want to see them, we did, but because the decision would have been so last minute. The show ended up being incredible. The good music and the surprise appearance of Kali Buds the artist made it very memorable. Music has always been the tool that my father and I used to connect, especially since during the day he was the classic corporate worker with a busy and stressful schedule, and during the night he was constantly out at a concert or art show. Sometimes it felt as though my father and I lacked any shared time because we just didn't get the chance to find it. The Brooklyn Steel has seen some of my father and I's most endeared shared moments together. Oftentimes, we reminisce about going to these concerts and how not only the show was amazing, but also about how just being at the Brooklyn Steel made the time spent worth it. I'm continuously fulfilling the gap of the time spent with my dad on those nights that he was out and now fulfilling my dreams that I once aspired to live. The Brooklyn Steel has been the place where we have filled that gap. So maybe the dreams that I had just had as a little girl were not about the concerts themselves, but rather they were just to spend time with my dad while doing something we both love together. I give the Brooklyn Steel four stars. Jane Kiernan, rising senior. In the months that have followed, Jane still attends Brooklyn Steel concerts with her dad. In fact, she just saw the band Declan McKenna after her dad told her she was going. Yet again, at the last minute. Now let's go into Raul Jimenez's experiences learning how to drive with both of his parents' different teaching styles and how that shaped his views of being an adult and graduating high school. When I was around 12 years old, I foolishly, but still secretly, wished that by the time I was 16, driverless cars would become so mainstream that getting a license would be pointless. Unfortunately, I'm a few years short of that future. After passing the written test, the DMV requires newcomers to complete at least 50 hours of supervised driving. Despite the written test requiring an accountant and a pocket copy machine, the form for the road test requires little to no paperwork, and rather than pay over $1,000 for a driving school to give me all that practice, my family decided to teach me the basics. Finally, I was going to learn how to drive. I'm sure every other teenager used to feel a sense of wonder and maturity when stepping into a car for the first time. 
The DMV made us go through hell before we could even grab the wheels. We've lived our lives riding buses or begging our parents to take us places. But once you step in, there's also a strange sense of volatile power to it. I'd seen movies of people dying in car wrecks, witnessed news reports of pileups, and even passed a couple on the highway. There's a reason car accidents are one of the most common causes of death in the world. With the flick of a lever, I could travel halfway across the country or turn a human being into hamburger meat if I'm not careful. For our first lesson, my dad drove me out to a company parking lot. We spent an hour going over buttons that I stupidly thought I'd remember. When I actually sat down, I clutched the wheel like it was a dead man's switch. Then we started circling the lot. According to the driver's manual, when making turns, you must reduce your speed, keep your wheel straight until you actually begin to make the turn, and constantly check your mirrors. I did not do these things. The first time I touched the pedal, I almost jerked the car into a fence. And I don't think I went over 10 miles an hour for practically the whole day. For our next lesson, we just honed the skills of signaling, making turns, and parking because, yeah, that's kind of important. But as an extra enforcer, anytime I hit a line while circling, my dad would point out how much money it would cost me if a car was there. It got to the point where I was opening a second mortgage to cover the damages. When we got to parking, my dad added the extra challenge of doing it next to an actual, physical, breakable van. I spent several moments going in and backing out of that one space. Sometimes I'd go in at an angle, sometimes I'd move in too fast and hit the curb. Sometimes I'd move so slowly that my dad would just yell at me to take my foot off the brake. Eventually, he reached a breaking point and we swapped places, and I watched him floor the gas and park perfectly in less than three seconds. That's what my dad was like most of the time. If he didn't like what he said, it was your goddamn problem. And he had the experience and world-weary knowledge to back up that behavior. He was the go-to driver if he had to be in the car. And he made everything about being an adult look easy. Everything about being an adult looks easy when an adult is doing it. It just made me wonder why the hell it took me so long to hit the accelerator. The third lesson was when I finally got on the road. It felt like a test from God when I made the turn into the highway. My skin felt like it was on fire. I was cursing and fidgeting the entire time. Chapter 8 of the driver's manual claimed that I was supposed to pull over and calm myself down before continuing. But there was no breakdown lane, so I was forced to suffer. Even as I made the turn into the driveway, I was expecting to feel something pop the tires, or maybe the engine would spontaneously combust and that would somehow be my fault. I had to know exactly what I was doing and when. Meanwhile, my dad laughed and recorded the entire thing to show to my family moments afterward. For an adult, my concern was treated like a joke. When my dad left the house for two months, my mom became my only available teacher. She hadn't been involved in any of my terrible, horrible, god-awful driving. So when I asked her to tag along while I drove to work, she prayed before I turned the car on. Yet, once we were cruising, there was certainly less yelling. Instead, I vented to her when panic started rearing its ugly head. She lamented her own anxieties when she learned how to drive. And that took me away from the driving itself. 
From there, the more times I got in the car, the more idiosyncrasies of driving in the real world I learned. You can just run a red light if you're right in front of it, despite Chapter 4 only saying to drive with caution. Like, I'm not always doing that. I almost never use my back mirror, despite how much the website emphasizes adjusting it. Each time I left, I came home with a little PTSD and wisdom. So when my dad returned home, I was confident enough to drive us to a barbershop in the city. There were a few bumps in the road. I freaked out and almost missed a few turns, but we survived. While my dad was getting shaved, I was busy amping myself up and saying I would do a better job on the way home. After leaving, my dad said he wanted to make a pit stop at Lowe's. I pulled out and got onto the road, ready to prove myself. Within the next five minutes, I'm on the highway, rubbing the stubble where my mustache used to be. The windows are down. We're exiting the city. My left foot is tapping the floor. The bridge of my nose is itching like crazy. My dad tells me to shift into the left lane to get on the highway. There are still a few cars behind me when I check my mirrors. I'm getting closer to the exit lane. We'll be backtracking for another 20 minutes if I don't shift. My dad is repeating his request. He's louder this time. My ears start to burn. I flick on my turn signal, half checking the road and half glancing at my side view mirror. There's nothing coming from behind, but when I look up to turn, another car materializes next to me. My dad is shouting, but I've already turned the wheel. We cover the distance just a second too soon. The side of the pickup buds against the car. There's no screech of metal or a blaring alarm, but bells were certainly booming in my head. My vision is blurring in fear. I see my dad point to the grass on the side of the road. I veer to the right, all habits having melted in my panic. The wheels crunch under the dirt. I press the gas until we're off the road. I jerk forward too far and the car parks on a slant. We get out. I lean against the fender with a hand on my forehead. What the hell did I just do? Did I hurt someone? Am I going to prison? What the hell? What the... The person I hit merges off the road with much more grace. On the sides of their door, I see a custom logo for some kind of laundromat. The driver exits the vehicle and checks the side of her car. There were two scratches along the side, leaving a scar over the picture. It must have cost a good amount of money for that branding, and I had no clue how to repair it. Instead of apologizing, I just sat by the car while my dad discussed the details. The woman walked up to me, said things were okay and it was an accident. My dad came by and told me he had gotten into fender benders while learning to drive too. But I still kept beating myself up over it, and it certainly didn't help when the woman decided to call the police. We waited for another 15 minutes or so, and when the cop car entered the frame, I didn't move from that patch of grass. Now it really felt like I was going to make things worse if I so much as breathed too loud. Chapter 12 of the driver's manual doesn't cover what you were supposed to do when cops showed up, or how to exchange insurance information, and not even how to apologize after the accident. The strawberry blonde officer surveyed the damage with the same indifference as my dad. I gave him my learner's permit, and he took it back to his car to print out a report. When he gave it back, I didn't feel comfortable having it with me. It was an undeserved privilege. There was now a record of that accident seared onto this piece of plastic, and that mistake would make for future paperwork, having to retell the story if my record is ever pulled up. And my dad let out one last grumble about his insurance rates going up because of this, and it acted as a last twist of the knife. 
20 minutes later, the cop was gone, and my dad was going about his business looking at curtains. The whole ordeal became small and pointless. How could adults be used to this? When was this feeling of shame supposed to fade and all of this became normal or funny enough you could record a video of it? My dad had to set an example for his family, so he learned how to grow up faster than most. He drives as often as he walks. As much as I want to be like that, I'm much more like my mom, who sometimes still messes up parking, who compensates for lost sleep with coffee, who tries not to commit felonies when carefully crafted plans fall apart. She still sets a great example, but there's a sense of struggle. She helped me understand that my parents were teenagers once. Obviously they were, that's how time works, but that means at some point, people like my dad were just as ignorant as me. Maybe not exactly, but someone like him must have had no idea what he was doing at one point or another. Every adult must have one. But how do you stop being so scared? Is there really a point in time where you go from a struggling college grad to a semi-struggling but stable adult? When you buy a house? When you get a job? When you have a kid and suddenly need to show them how the world works? Or when you get your first car and travel is suddenly more convenient? I still have a lot more growing up to do before I reach whatever point that is, if ever. I can't not drive, but maybe if I kept going, I'd be able to pick up the keys without feeling anxious the day before, or checking the routes to see how hard it would be. There will be future accidents, there will be awkwardness, and stress, and moments where I have no idea what the hell I'm doing. The only thing to do is to keep doing. I give Driver's Ed 3 out of 5 stars. Roel Jimenez, 2023 graduating senior. To this day, Ro has not gotten into another car accident, despite not checking his rearview mirror. When he first heard the segment in his car, you guessed it, he had his father drive. Today's episode was written and narrated by Andrew Glinsky, Natalie Miles, Jane Kiernan, and Roel Jimenez. Today's episode was produced by Kovid Odward, Stevie Georgiakakis, Roel Jimenez, and Yonia Dami. Music is given to us by Blue Dot Sessions. If you like what you hear, stay tuned for episode two.